This morning, if you want to turn in your Bibles to Revelation 17, Revelation 17, we're continuing in our series in the book of Revelation, and we find ourselves this morning in Revelation 17, interesting chapter. It's funny, uh, the names some people are given. Have you seen that? Funny names? Um, when I was baptized in a large denominational church as a baby, uh, I was given, my baptismal name was Cornelius. Cornelius. So that's where Neil comes from. Can you imagine going through junior high with a name like Cornelius? You don't want to do that. Um, but Cornelius was the first Italian who came to know the Lord in Acts chapter 10, you remember Cornelius? He was the Italian centurion, and that was my baptismal name. I came across this uh, little note. It was a hand-lettered sign nailed to a telephone pole that said, lost dog with three legs, blind in the left eye, missing right ear, tail broken, and recently castrated. Answers to the name of Lucky. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. His name doesn't fit. <laughs> well, this morning we're going to talk, part of what we're going to talk about is this lady, this woman, and guess what her name is? Are you ready for this name? Verse 5, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. How'd you like to go through, how'd you like to go through life with a name like that? It was written on her forehead. I want to talk about her, and we also want to talk about uh, the animal or the beast that she is sitting on. Now, these two chapters, chapter 17 and 18, don't advance the action in Revelation. Chapter 16, if you remember, the seven bowls of wrath have been poured out. We're just about ready for the second coming of Christ, which takes place in chapter 19. But the action is put on hold for two chapters while John is given a revelation of Babylon, mystery Babylon. Now, as we look at these two chapters, you'll see, well, chapter 18, as you, if you've read through it, seems more concerning economics. And it's an economic, it's talking about an economic Babylon. But in chapter 17, it seems like something a little different, just a little different. And it almost has uh, an element of uh, religion or spirituality or whatever you want to say. So we see two parts of this mystery Babylon, one economic and one dealing with religion, spiritual things. So let's read the chapter and then uh, we'll see where we can go from that. So Revelation chapter 17, verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had seven bulls came and spoke with me saying, come here, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. And he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a cup full of the abominations of the unclean things 
of her immorality. And on her forehead, a name was written, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered greatly. And the angel said to me, why do you wonder? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast which carries her, which has seven heads and ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. And those who dwell on the earth whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will wonder when they see the beast and that he, that he was and is not and will come. Here's the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are the seven mountains on which the woman sits. And they are seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must remain a little while. The, beach, the beast, which was and is not, is himself also an eighth, and is one of the seven, and he goes to destruction. The ten horns which you have saw are ten kings who have not yet received the kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. These have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. These will wage war against the lamb, and the lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of Lord and King of Kings. And those who are with him are called and chosen faithful. And he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, and nations, and tongues. And the ten horns which you saw and the beasts, these will hate the harlot and will make her desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and will burn her with fire. For God has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God will be fulfilled. The woman whom you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Father, we're thankful for the word of God. Again and again, it's a light and a lamp to us in this dark world. What would we have if we didn't have your word? Open this uh, chapter to us, we pray in your name. Amen. What is it we can learn from this chapter? It seems like this has hardly anything to do with the life that we live right now. What is it we can learn? Well, we can learn there are several, uh, many errors that are found in this religious woman that have perpetrated and sunk into the church from time to time. We need to recognize them and fight against them. And secondly, the beast that's mentioned in the second half of the chapter, it's an interesting uh, and somewhat confusing picture of this, uh, this beast. And I want to talk about that because I think it has some application as we draw near to the second coming of Christ. So let's take a look. First thing we need to do is understand the woman on the scarlet beast. We need to understand the woman on the scarlet beast. In verses 1 and 7, we see this woman, and she's called uh, Babylon, the mother of harlots. Um, in verse 18, it says that the woman you saw is a great city which reigns over the cities or the kings of the earth. Now, Babylon, the literal city, has never reigned over all the kings of the earth in a physical sense. But in a very spiritual sense, it has. The errors that began all the way back in Genesis 
with the city of Babylon as people try to worship God in their own way, doing what is right in their own minds, uh, has uh, gone out over and over again into the world and influenced many people. Okay. What is this woman? What is this woman? Well, let me, let me just put it out and see how you, what we can take it. This woman uh, represents what is left of the church after the rapture. When Jesus comes for the rapture, he takes the people out and there's a church left filled with people who didn't know Jesus filled with people who call themselves Christians, but they didn't go up because they were not Christians. What happens is the Antichrist and his kingdom establishes and builds this up, and he takes what's left of Christianity, Buddhism, Hinduism, and Islam, and he puts together this wonderful one-world church where they all agree together. And the errors of all those religions that were instituted and began in Babylon are brought together in this wonderful unified church. Now you say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. He did that? Why is he then in chapter chapter 17, verses 16 and 17, why does he destroy it? That's a good question. Why does he destroy this church that he built up? Well, you have to understand, do you remember? Seven years. First three and a half years, the Antichrist is the, oh, he's a wonderful man. He's made peace with Israel. He's allowed the Jews to rebuild their temple. Everybody thinks he's wonderful. He's instituted this universal church where everybody has finally stopped fighting with each other. What happens? At the end of three and a half years, what does he do? He breaks the covenant with the Jews. He goes into the temple and proclaims himself what? God. And he says, you must worship me. And he turns on this church and he destroys it. That's a reasonable explanation of what we see here in chapter 17. Now, why is it called Babylon? Because at this time, it is the fullest expression of all the errors that have come and gone in religion. And many of them were instituted into the church, especially when the church was recognized as the authoritative religion in the Roman Empire in the third or fourth century. Then many of the people, most people don't know this, many of the pagan temples were turned to churches after Constantine legitimatized uh, Christianity. Many of the churches, pagan temples, were turned to churches. Many pagans Figured, well, I'm Roman, I might as well join the church. They came into their church, but they were not Christians. They were not born again. So instituted into the early church were many of these pagan practices that had their root cause in Babylon. Now, am I attacking the Catholic church? No, 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 don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. That was the only church back then. Many of the things and the errors that were instituted and started in the Catholic church were also propagated by the Protestant church after the Reformation. Now, the Reformation had to happen. It had to happen because the Catholic church at that time was so polluted with these errors. But guess what? Many of those errors were perpetrated 
Also in the Protestant denominations. Look at verse 6. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of saints. If you think that was only the Catholic Church, you need to read church history. Because after the Reformation, there were people who were killing people in the name of Christ. And when we see that, that is, a, is a, an expression, an expression of the great harlot. Okay. That's my understanding of the woman on the scarlet beast. She is the apostate church. She is uh, pulled together by the Antichrist, uniting this one world religion, which he turns on the second half of his reign. Okay. Now we come to a little bit more confusing uh, subject. Understanding the beast that's described as having seven heads and ten horns. Verse 3, and then we're told that in beginning in verses 8 through 14 that what this thing is will be explained. Okay, so the first question we have in mind as we look at this text is who and what is this beast that has seven heads and ten horns? We've seen this before, haven't we? Do you remember? Look with me in Revelation chapter 12. Chapter 12. Verse 3, chapter 12, John is given a vision. Then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads, ten horns. Hey, here we go again. Now, if you scroll down to verse 9, you'll see that this beast is identified. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of all, who is called the devil and Satan. Okay, the beast with the Seven heads and ten horns is identified here as Satan. Well, that's pretty clear. Turn to chapter 13. Chapter 13. And the dragon stood on the sand, that is the seven-headed, ten-horned dragon, on the sea, she saw, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea, another beast, having ten horns, seven heads. All right. As we read that chapter, we found out that that's a picture of the Antichrist, the literal Antichrist. That's a visionary of, of who he is. He is uh, having ten horns, seven heads. He is the Antichrist. And we saw him described also with the false prophet beginning in verse 11. Okay, so what have we got here? We've got another beast that has seven heads and ten horns. What is this thing? Well, it's not Satan. It's not his king, kingdom. It's not, anti, it's not Antichrist specifically. It is his kingdom. His kingdom. His kingdom. Okay. What do these heads and horns mean? What do these heads and horns mean? Well, let's, let's take them one at a time. First, the ten horns are nations and kings that make up this final kingdom. This is according to Daniel chapter 7, verse 24. Look what it says, verse 12. The ten horns which you are saw are ten kings who have not yet received the kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. These have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. The ten horns are ten kings, the final kingdom 
of the Antichrist will be made up of 10 nations. Now, when the European common market was beginning to be put together, we saw there was 10 nations. We said, aha, that's it, there it is. And now we find out the European common market is more than 10 nations. But we know that the final kingdom, the Antichrist kingdom, will be made up of a conglomeration of 10 kings who will totally submit to the rule of the Antichrist. Okay, well, that's fairly easy, but what do we do with the seven heads? Uh, now, I want to give you the traditional view, and then I want to give you kind of an alternate view. Uh, both um, can be somewhat confusing. Uh, some you'll relate with, and others you'll say, well, no, no I see a problem here, a problem there, but... Um, my feet aren't in concrete on either of these, but they have some interesting aspects, especially as we draw near in what's happening right now in the Far East, in the Mideast. Okay. Let's take it one step at a time. Okay. This is verse 9. This is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits, and they are seven kings. All right, so they're mountains, kings, but what they really are are kingdoms. They're kingdoms, okay? Five have fallen. Now, what you have to understand when you look at prophecy, you have to see prophecy that doesn't relate to the United States or Europe. It's always centered around Israel and the Mideast. Uh, prophecy doesn't concern Africa, doesn't concern North America. It concerns what's happening around Israel and the Mideast. Okay. There are seven kings. Five have fallen. So part of this kingdom made up of five kingdoms that have already fallen. Well, think about that. What are the major kingdoms that have troubled Israel, that have sought to uh, restrict the work of God and the people of God? Well, they're easy. You might want to write them down. Egypt. Assyria, Babylon, Persia, and Greece. Those are the five. And they had fallen at the time of the writing. These were already gone. He goes on. The other five have fallen and one is. Now, what was the kingdom that was in power at the time of this writing? Rome. Okay. So there you have five have fallen. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and the sixth one is Rome. Okay, that works. And it goes on. The other has not yet come, which is the seventh kingdom. And when he comes, he must reign a little while. The beast which was and is not is himself also an eighth. There's an eighth kingdom. The eighth kingdom is the final kingdom, that re- which is a fullest expression of Satan attacking God's people. And that's the kingdom of the Antichrist. The kingdom of the Antichrist. But the eighth is a manifestation of the seventh. Notice what he says. The beast which was and is not is himself also an eighth. And he is one of the seven and he goes to destruction. Okay. The traditional view. The traditional view. Okay, so you have the six kingdoms beginning with Egypt, ending with Rome. The seventh kingdom is what we call the revived Roman Empire. Revived Roman Empire. That's the seventh kingdom. 
And out of that seventh kingdom comes the eighth kingdom, which is the kingdom of the Antichrist. That's a pretty traditional viewpoint. And that's rooted and grounded in our whole understanding of the European common market and Rome. And uh, some people kind of throw the Catholics under the bus at this point. But I don't think the Catholic Church is the woman. Don't, don't, don't believe that. That's not true. That's not true. Now, the Roman Catholic Church has a lot of problems. Amen? We don't, we're Calvary Chapel. We're Protestant. We don't, we don't trash the Roman Church. They have a lot of problems, but so does the Protestant Church, right? So let's all put down our stones and not make the Pope the Antichrist and all that silliness. That's not true. That's not what the Bible teaches. Okay. So you have this, um, this uh, seventh kingdom, which is Rome, they're saying. So the sixth kingdom is Rome and the seventh kingdom is Rome. Ah, that doesn't work. I don't like that. What do we do with that? Okay. Well, let me give you an alternate viewpoint, an alternate viewpoint. And it has some interest in light of what's going on in the Mideast. Note that all six kingdoms were centered around Mideast and Israel. They controlled Jerusalem and they absorbed or conquered the previous kingdom. Do you see that? So Egypt was conquered by Assyria. Assyria was conquered by Babylon. Babylon was conquered by Persia. Greece, uh, Persia was conquered by Greece, and Greece was conquered by Rome. Okay, so each one followed another. All had control of Jerusalem. And so the question would be, what kingdom superseded Rome? Ah, now it gets a little interesting. Okay, let's talk about Rome. Rome, the kingdom of Rome, was divided in 395 AD. 395 AD, you had the western kingdom centered around the city of Rome, and you had the eastern kingdom centered around a city called Constantinople, which is now called Istanbul. In 410 AD, just a few years after Rome was separated, the kingdom of Rome was separated into two kingdoms, the, the, the western kingdom, Rome, was invaded by the northern tribes of Europe and conquered. Done. But the eastern kingdom, centered around Constantinople, today, which we call Istanbul, continued on. It continued on until the year 1453 AD, about 600 years ago. The Eastern Empire, which was the final, Rome finally collapsed in 1453, was overrun by the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire, which ruled the Mideast and Jerusalem. This Ottoman Empire was the seat of the Islamic Caliphate. And I believe it could be the Islamic Caliphate, uh, Caliphate was the Seventh Empire. And the Eighth Empire, which comes out of the Seventh, is a revived Islamic caliphate, which is the kingdom of the Antichrist. Now, the reason I bring this up, it has some implications. Now, we're not driven, our theology is not driven by what's happening in the newspaper, amen? We're not driven by history. But it's interesting that it has, some, it has some things you can deal with and think about. What we see going on right now in the Mideast possibly could be 
prophesied in this chapter. That would mean that we are closer to the second coming of Christ than many of us believe. Many of us believe. But I put those before you. Um, Once again, our feet aren't in concrete on this, but it it has some interesting implications as we watch to see, even as Pastor Chuck would say, let's see what the Lord does with this. Okay. So you have the woman, the apostate religion of the end times, which is lifted up by Antichrist and then destroyed when he turns on Israel and proclares himself God. Then you have this beast, which is the kingdom of the Antichrist, represented by all the kingdoms, uh, previous kingdoms that were working against the work of God. Let's take a look at some of the spiritual errors that are found here in this chapter, which from time to time, not all the time, but from time to time has been infect, has infected the church, whether it's the Roman Catholic Church or the Protestant Church. Notice the errors. Verses 1, through 15, verses one and 15. This uh, woman, this religion, this church, uh, church, if you want to call it that, is a harlot who sits on many waters. Oh, that's interesting. Chapter uh, 7, verse 15, 17, verse 15 says, and the waters which you saw the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, and nations. What this represents is that this, uh, this harlot has taken all the good things of all the other legitimate world religions and in, has included them within its total worship. That's called syncretism. You know what syncretism is? You take a little bit of truth from Islam, a little truth from Buddhism, a little truth from uh, Hinduism, and a little truth from, from Christianity, and you merge them together to make this everybody happy religion. Now, the problem with Christianity throughout the ages has always been what? What's the criticism we hear of Christianity? You guys are so exclusive. You believe you're the only way. Come on. The president has even said that the, uh, uh, Islam is a legitimate religion. It's a, it's a world, a religion of peace. And we, we need to take some of the things that are found in Islam and appropriate them into the church. The error of the church has always been when they became less and less exclusive and more inclusive of other thoughts and other ideas found in the religions that are founded all the way back in the religion of Babylon when people sought to seek God in their own understandings. Second error we find. It says the wine of her immorality. Now, whenever you look in the Hebrew scriptures, when it talks about the Spiritual things. It's not talking about physical immorality. What is it talking about? It talks about adultery. It talks about immorality. It's talking about when the people of God begin to worship another God. Now, you may call him Jesus. You may call him Jehovah. But if he is not the God of the Bible, as described in the Bible, you are worshiping and you are involved in the immorality of the great harlot. Worshiping God of your own imagination or a God of somebody else's imagination? From time to time, we see people 
who call themselves Christians, and they're worshiping a God of their own understanding. Third error found in verse 3. The founder of this religion, this one world church, is the Antichrist himself. He instituted it. He pulled it together. If the foundation is corrupt, so is the organization. If the founder is corrupt, so is the organization. Many world religions, many world religions and cults are founded by liars and scoundrels. And if that is the foundation, so it is true of the, of the organization. Verse 5. The practices are rooted in the Babylonian religious system. The Babylonian religious system was seeking to find God in their own understanding, allowing the cultural practices and theories of that current generation to infect the church. And whenever we allow that which society thinks is right and true, as opposed to what the Bible says, we are drifting towards, we are drifting towards that which we see in verse 5. We become the mother of our harlots. Now we see this pressure on the church even now to begin to conform to that which society. You see, the Bible was nice, but now it's outdated. Society has moved on, and we, we have a clearer understanding of how to live life, you see. And when we begin to allow that to infect the church as opposed to what the Bible says, we're drifting towards what we see in verse 17. Verse 6, persecution of true believers. Persecution of true believers. When the radical Hindus, when the radical Muslims and Buddhists kill Christians, they are proclaiming the name of their church, the name of their religion. What is it? It's the great whore. It's the harlot. They are expressing that which will be fully expressed in the end times. Now, that has been true of the Catholic Church throughout the ages, and it is also true for some of the Protestant denominations. If you read, they were killing Christians in the name of Christ. That is an era that has infected the church almost from the 3rd and 4th century. Finally, verse 3. This uh, religion, this one world religion, is supported by the civil government. Notice, it was instituted by, it was started by the Antichrist in his kingdom. Whenever the church gains power along with the civil government and they join together, you can be sure that we're heading in the wrong direction. You can be sure that we're going to be described just like what's in verse 5. The framers of the Constitution knew this. They saw what had happened in Europe when civil governments were empowered and empowered the religion of the country. And it led to terrible things that went on in Europe, the religious wars. Now, I'm not saying that you can't have Christians in government or there can't be uh, religion, there can't be Christianity within government. No, no, that's not true. That's, that's, that's part of who we are. But when you combine the power of the government with the religious power of that day, we are looking for 
big trouble. Big trouble. Okay. There's some errors. Weren't always expressed by the church, but has been highly influenced from time to time by these errors. Okay. We need to finally to understand how to resist these errors. How to resist these errors. Why are you here rather than being a Mooney or uh, some other, uh, or Jehovah Witness or a Mormon or any of the other world religions and cults? Why are you here rather than there? I can tell you why. I got five reasons. One, because you're a seeker of truth. You're a seeker of truth. Jesus said in John 8, 32, You'll know the truth. You continue in my word. You'll know the truth. And the truth will set you free. We as Christians do not need to be afraid of the truth. Why? In God is light and there is no darkness whatsoever. He is the author of truth. He is the ultimate truth. So whenever we're looking at something, we're always looking for the truth. Be a seeker of the truth. And you don't have to be afraid of the truth. Now, the current scientists will tell us they know the truth about evolution. It's a lie. It's a lie. And it will be proved to be a lie. We need to be seekers of the truth. Secondly, be a seeker of Jesus. Be a seeker of Jesus. Jesus said in John 10, 10, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I came to bring what? Life and life more abundantly. Whenever you get away from seeking Jesus, you're moving in the wrong direction. It's all about him. It's all about him. Be a seeker of Jesus. He is the one who brings life to this world and to you. Be a seeker of Jesus. Thirdly, question your motives and feelings when opposed to the Bible. Question your motives and your feelings when they're in opposition to the Bible. Why do I say that? Well, Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful and desperately sick. (laughs) That's the truth about you. And so when you have feelings, I have feelings. I have emotions. And you look at them, and they don't square up with the Bible. You know what's wrong? Not the Bible, but you. You. You need to question those motives when they go against the clear teaching of the scripture. Because it'll lead you to what's described in verse 5. The mother of all harlots. Question your feelings and emotions when they don't line up with the Bible. Feelings come and go. The word of God is eternal. Fourthly, put your faith in God not in men or a religious system. Why do I say that? Hebrews 13, 5 says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Men will leave you. (laughs) Men will forsake you. Religious organizations will leave you and will forsake you, but Jesus will never leave you. He will never forsake you. Put your faith in him and him only. Finally, number five, persevere. Don't quit. James 1.12 says, 
Blessed is the man who perseveres under trials, under temptations. It says in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works. Too many times we begin to think, well, Pastor Neil, I failed and I've, I've blown it here. I've, I've done something and I, I don't know. I don't know if I can continue. That's a lie from the pit of hell. Why? Because you're not saved by your works. Did you know the Bible says, the Bible says that you're seated in heaven? What does that mean? Positionally, God looks at you as a perfect child of God. Did you know that? You say, yeah, but Pastor Neil, things are kind of difficult in this world. Yes, you're in the process of sanctification. You're in the process of uh, growing in Christ, which means uh, if you're growing in Christ, that means prior to that, you were not in such a good spot. Now you're growing, and you're growing, and you're growing. Well, what do you do when you fail? What does it say in the Bible? Repent and confess your sins. And get up. Ask God to forgive you. And the blood of Christ will cleanse you from some of your sins. No, no, no. That's not what the Bible says. It says all of your sins. All of your sins. You're saying all? That's right. All of them. You mean, well, well, what about this one, Pastor? You don't know what I did. I don't want to know what you did. (laughs) You don't want to know what I did. But I can tell you one thing, the blood of Christ will cleanse you from all sin. And so what do you do? You you repent, ask Jesus to forgive you, and you keep walking with Jesus. That's how you do it. It's really easy. Don't give up. Persevere. Okay. My time is coming to an end here. So what do we learn from this chapter? Well, we learn that it's going to be an apostate religious organization in the end times, supported by the Antichrist and then turned against when he says he's God. We've learned this beast. Now, we're not sure exactly how it's going to work out. It would be interesting if it's the uh, revived Islamic caliphate, kind of fits in with our time scheme right now. Could be. Could be the revived Roman Empire. We don't know. But certainly, that kingdom is an expression of, of every organization that is seeking to stifle Israel and kill the work of God through his people. We see the spiritual errors and we understand how to resist those errors. Now, the name of this church is Calvary Chapel Mission Viejo. Now, it is not Babylon the Great, Mother of Harlots and the Abominations of the Earth. That's not the name of this church and my prayer is, and I know you will walk with me, that that will never be the name of this church because we will not give in to the errors of that church, that organization. May God give us the strength to do that. Let's pray. Father, we're wondering what's happening in this world. It certainly seems that you're close to coming. We've said that before many times. We don't want to put dates or do anything like that, but it seems like things are, even as Pastor Chuck used to say, wrapping up. Give us the wisdom and the insight to walk with you 
no matter what's going on in this world. Give us the insight and the strength to persevere when it seems like many, even churches, are giving in to the pressure of this age. Give us the power to be witnesses for Christ. Even when we fall short, even when we don't measure up to what the Bible calls us to do or measure up to what we desire to do, help us to find forgiveness and strength to walk with you. May the goodness of God be with this church. May we stand as a city on the hill, a light to the world in these dark times. May we glorify you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with me this morning.